Amen. Well, forgive me if I don't spend a second just to in, enjoy this situation. The last time I've preached, I've been fixated on that camera up there, not seeing the whites of people's eyes, so it's lovely to be able to actually have people in the room. And I'm also excited because I'm preaching on my favourite gospel, John. And I love John, and I always recommend the gospel of John to new Christians or to people who are exploring faith, because the primary context of John is asking and dealing with the question, who was, who is Jesus? His inner life, his self-identity. I was a history teacher for many years, and I would daily ask my pupils the question, what is the purpose of this source of evidence? Why was it created? And John tells us that he selected the material so that readers might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and that by, le- and that by believing this, they might have life in his name. If we were to summarize the purpose of John, perhaps in a single sentence, tricky, I know, it would be, I think, to prove conclusively that Jesus is the son of God and all who believe in him will have eternal life. So if you're here today and you're wondering who this Jesus is, I'd recommend the book of John to you. And speaking of the book of John, let's get into where we're going with this. So we are in John 2, 13 to 25. Jesus clears the temple courts. I hear there are things called mobile phones with apps with Bible and all sorts of things on it now. So if that's where you go, then that's great. Or if you're a Luddite like me, you still like to read on paper. Let's read through anyway. Jesus clears the temple courts. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said... Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. It was probably a little bit more assertive than that. His disciples remember that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind for he knew what was in each person. So what's going on here? And I think there's a, there's a depiction of, of this scene, El Greco, for those of you who like art like I do. But the focus is the temple. The temple in Jerusalem was where Jesus' presence dwelt. The temple, when you were to go inside it, was modeled on imagery we find in the Garden of Eden, which of course was the first temple where God's presence was first on earth. But of course we know that mankind messes up. We know the story, Adam and Eve. And a new temple was created, several times actually, 
when the Israelites finally claimed the land. And this is the temple that we read about, this physical building in the passage. And at Passover, and it's interesting, Andrew spoke last, uh, last week about Jesus' first miracle, a very intimate situation. Here we have Passover. And Jerusalem, historians think, usually had a population of 100 to 200,000 people. At Passover, that would be at about a million people. So you're thinking a place bigger than Leeds, which is really quite impressive. And so we've got people coming to Jerusalem from all over, and they're offering sacrifices, tens of thousands at a time. And of course, most of these people have traveled. Some a great distance, and, and they wouldn't have brought animals to sacrifice because there was every chance of that animal getting ill, blemished, cutting a leg against the cage, something like that, I don't know. But the people had to offer a perfect animal to sacrifice. And so here it's convenient that we see in the passage that they had to buy one. And so as the temple courts have become bigger, and history tells us that under Herod's rule, they had that, that was certainly the case, we're talking acres and acres of temple courts here, more and more cattle sellers and money exchangers gathered. And if you're thinking, well, why were there money exchanges present? Well, this is interesting. Well, because the people who were coming had to pay a temple tax in only one currency. And so they had to exchange their foreign money, because most of these people were foreigners, for the temple currency. The problem was the temple prices were exorbitant and the money changes were extortioners. So this place, this temple, this place so important to, to God's people as a place of his presence, reverence, prayer had, had been polluted. And actually, people's hearts are being polluted as well. And what should have been this wonderful transformational experience had really descended into what is more like a transactional one. And we see Jesus get very, very angry. And I felt prompted really today to talk about this, about anger in particular. Why? Because I think the world is very angry. I think the world is more angry than it's ever been right now. Gallup, which is uh, one of the world's largest polling uh, and survey companies, sought to find the mood of the world with its global emotions report. 160,000 people, 116 countries, 18 months worth of work in the last 18 months. And unsurprisingly, the results were that people were more stressed, sad, and angry than at any point in Gallup's tracking process, which first started, by the way, in 1938 which is pre-World War II. World War II wasn't a good time. Now, the pandemic has obviously been a major con contributor to this, but Gallup also argued that levels of, of happiness have been trending downwards for decades. We think about the immediate, we think about COVID, we think about job loss, relationship breakdown, loss of freedoms, loss of time, but there are things that have always been there. Relationships, workplace stress, the negatives of social media and what feels like greater disconnection than ever before. And if you're anything like me, stress, anxiety, grief, there's been plenty of that, hasn't there? They often manifest as, you guessed it, anger. And actually, anger, when I thought about it, is capitalized on in so many ways to the point that it really can be glorified. I think about my own teenage years, and my teenage hero was Batman. I was that teenager who went around lifting up his brothers by their armpits saying, I'm Batman. 
That was me. But when I thought about it, I thought, goodness me, Batman, the, the whole story is predicated on Bruce Wayne seeing his parents murdered in front of him in the street, and then it's about revenge, revenge, revenge. Captain Haddock, another childhood hero of mine. He's just an angry drunk. What series of books have I been reading most probably over the last 10 years on and off? Jack Reacher novels, who is a murderous vigilante. And truth be told, I was an angry teenager and an angry young man. I wonder what makes you angry. I wonder if you've been angry this morning. I wonder if you've been angry this week. I think about what makes me angry. Dog muck, dangerous drivers, technology, IT. So much respect for Dan and John in the back there. <laughs> Children. But I wonder where your heart goes when you think about certain things that make you angry. Perhaps you think of a person, a family member, a colleague, an incident, a situation you're in, something that was said or not said. Something that you tried hard to forget, but you just can't. You know, I wonder if there are some of us here who don't even know that you're angry anymore. Perhaps you've, you've buried it deep down. Maybe you have just continued to put things on that metaphorical kind of angry shelf, and you've never really dealt with it. See, the problem I had with anger, when I look back on this, was that it felt really quite good at times. I don't know if that relates to you at all. People far cleverer than I reckon that anger is addictive. Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? We can actually cherish our anger. You know, the Bible tells us not to let the sun go down on our anger, but I suspect that we have seen suns rise and, and suns set and have still harbored anger. And so I want to come back to this. Because in the passage, we see Jesus get very angry, but he gets angry at the right things. He gives us some clues on how to do it well, and in doing so, as ever, provides some real challenge to us. So why does he really get angry in this passage? Well, they've perverted the use of the temple. That was fairly obvious, because this was the house of God, the one place where sinners would come and offer sacrifices and enjoy fellowship with God. Reassurance of his favor and his grace. It was a place of, of prayer, of blessed interchange with God and his people. But what was happening was that the religious leaders were selling the sacrifices required by God's law for a profit. In other words, poor families who traveled far and at great expense to follow God's law were being extorted when they should have been helped. This is where we see Jesus so angry. Why? Because they were fundamentally, and this is important, they were fundamentally making it harder for people to get to God. And perhaps worse still, they were doing it for their own profits and gain. You know, we could talk about televangelists doing this kind of stuff, couldn't we? Leading people down almost like a prosperity gospel route, taking money as ill-gotten gains. But let's think about our own hearts this morning, Oak Church. You see, Jesus' anger came out when someone was being kept from him. Jesus wanted all people to have the opportunity to know his love for them. And when that opportunity was squashed, either by a rule 
a person or a system, he was enraged. And so, let's get angry at the right things. I don't really want to anger Jesus, do you? But I think we risk this if we keep people he loves. And who's the, who, who does he love? Everyone. <laughs> From having access to him. Now, we don't necessarily do this in the same way that we see in the passage. Selling animals, exchanging money. I don't think any of us do that anyway. But we can do this in other ways. We can all, at times, make it difficult for people to get to God. And at times, you know, I need to ask forgiveness from God. I need to ask forgiveness from my wife and my children because I can sometimes lack self-control and patience. I can let something that's not conducive to appropriate godly anger get the better of, of me. And you know what? I do wonder if that creates an obstacle at times. How much of our behaviors when observed by others, especially children, are caught and not taught? Caught and not taught. We can teach someone until we are blue in the face, but if we don't live it, they're not likely to do it. There's a story of a man who is being tailgated by a woman who is in a hurry, and I'll preface this by saying this is not a comment on female drivers, this is just a story. <laughs> and he comes to traffic lights, and the light turns amber, and this man hits the brakes. The woman behind him goes absolutely ballistic. She's honking a horn, she's yelling her frustration. She's making her anger known in no uncertain terms. Ranting, raving. And while she's in mid-rant, uh, mid someone taps on her window. She looks up and she sees a policeman. He invites her out of the car and he takes her to the station where she's fingerprinted and questioned. After a couple of hours, of course, she's released. The arresting officer gives her things back, saying, I'm sorry for the mistake. I pulled up behind your car while you were hitting your horn, using bad gestures and bad language, and I, and I noticed that what would Jesus do, bump a sticker and the, the, the fish emblem on your boot, and I naturally assumed we'd stolen the car. <laughs> the story speaks for itself, doesn't it? But you know, there's something haunting in this passage. It haunts me anyway. Wherein it says, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. You see, Jesus knew the fickle nature of the crowd. He, he knew that crowd would, would be crucifying him at some point. Let's not be like that. On a wider level, I've seen some really interesting things through my role at work. So I work for a charity called TLG, and I've been leading on education, so schools, and how as a charity we partner with churches to create missional and gospel opportunities for, for the young people and the families that we come into contact with to hear the, you know, the important news of Christ. And I've seen some real differences in the UK church's response. And this is a bit of a challenge here. Because my observation is a simple but important one. And I really want to be careful here uh, that this is a judgment that I make rather than wanting to come across as judgmental. So if I offend anyone, then I, either watching at home or here, then I, please forgive me. That's not my intention whatsoever. But my observation of church, speaking to many, many church leaders over the last 18 months is that some churches have retreated into themselves and some of the congregations with it. Although the last 18 months have been undoubtedly hard, it has been convenient Many of us across the land have been armchair viewers. 
And some of us who are capable of coming back to church have just drifted away. And it's really important to make that distinction because I'm aware of health concerns for some. This is what I mean about making sure you hear my heart. But there are some people who have gently become part of what could be described as a kind of consumerism in their faith and in their heart. Does that make sense? Other churches have seen the pandemic as a megaphone, an amplifier for what we read in Matthew when it says, the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And I'm talking about the obvious stuff, poverty, actual poverty, but more important than that is spiritual poverty because I am absolutely convinced without a shadow of a doubt that there is more hunger out there than ever before. I was speaking to my in-laws. My in-laws are Gideon, so they're the kind of people who are on the street on a Saturday morning or they'll go to a freshers fair. And they say, this year has been like no other. Students, people, they want to know more. They want to talk. What is this? Because the last 18 months have provided an awful lot of angst and questions. You know, what's all this about? So church, let's get angry about this. And as a church and as individuals, make as many opportunities for people to hear the gospel that we can. I also felt prompted to remind us of God's perfect emotional state in all this. At the beginning of lockdown, I sent my whole friendship group, this is a bunch of guys I still, uh, I grew up with and I still see them, and I sent them an email saying, what are your main objections to Christianity? Um, I got a variety of replies, none of which really surprised me. But as you can imagine, and this is almost a little sermon in itself, these replies are really uh, illuminating. And for me, it was a lesson in the importance of asking questions rather than necessarily worrying that you have all the answers. But one of my friend's responses included this. He said, Jack, I've got a real issue with God's wrath, or wrath, whichever one you want to call. His, His anger. He just couldn't square a loving God with a God who got angry. Maybe at times this has been an issue for you. But I want to tell you that my friend is is sadly misguided. It misses the point. And it also highlights something that all of us can do. I've certainly done it. Which is that we wrongly view God's emotions through our own imperfect and fuzzy human lens. B.B. Warfield, a, a wonderful American theologian, correctly said that a morally perfect human such as Christ would be a contradiction if he didn't get angry. And what we must see is that compassion and anger must rise and fall together. As it says in the book Gentle and Lowly, which I would recommend without reservation to everyone in this room, a compassionless Christ could never have gotten angry at the injustices all around him the severity and human barbarity, even that flowing from the religious elite. We saw that at the temple, didn't we? No. Compassion and indignation rise together in his soul. You know, for me, this was illustrated a couple of months ago uh, when I took my girls to the cricket at Farsi Cricket Club on a Friday night. And (laughs) we've got this really cheap Asda cricket set. Gaz is smiling because he knows what I'm talking about. And it's got these blue cricket bats in it. I won it as a prize, actually. Oh, you know, it's okay. They're not great. But I could just overhear this conversation, probably 15, 20 metres away, of a, a boy who was about 11 or 12 years old, and he was laughing at my daughter. 
He was being unkind. And anger rose in me. But it rose out of a, pla- out of a place of compassion. It rose out of a place of compassion because it was injustice. It's a little illustration of our father's heart. Anger and compassion rising together. As a church and as individuals, we need to hold that tension carefully, don't we? Anger and compassion. Both should rise up in us and make us act. And as an individual, I ask myself the question, and it's a hard one, am I broken enough to get angry and compassionate about what I know caused Jesus to become furious? Does our anger lead to a longing for people to meet the risen king, the Lord of all, the prince of peace? The American pastor Edward Payson wrote these words in 1827. He said, I was never fit to speak a word to a sinner except except when I had a broken heart myself and felt as if I had just received a pardon to my own soul. No anger. No anger. See, Jesus was the epitome of moral goodness. He was perfect. Therefore, he revolted against evil with indignant righteous anger more deeply than anyone. But it goes even deeper than that, even deeper than that, because if we follow this path, it must mean that Jesus is also angry with us, alongside us. And this is comforting, isn't it? It's comforting. He joins us in in our anger, but he is angrier than you or I could ever be about the wrong done to you. Our just anger is a shadow of his. Again, in Gentle and Lowly, it says, and his anger, unlike yours, has zero taint of sin in it. As you consider those who have wronged you, let Jesus be angry on your behalf. His anger can be trusted, for it is an anger that springs from compassion for you. And so in our anger, we should not sin. It's worth remembering that all emotions are God-given. And remember, God looked at his creation, and what did he say about it? He said it was very good. But of course we then sinned, and that became tainted and it became polluted. There's a lovely little soundbite from Tim Keller, which says, there are no bad emotions, but emotions gone bad. There are no bad emotions, but emotions gone bad. I think it's so interesting that Jesus' response when he came into the temple courts and saw what was going on, it wasn't knee-jerk. He actually didn't fly off the handle. It was considered. you think there'd have been bits of rope everywhere holding these animals. And he'd have to have knelt down, picked some rope up, and it would have taken some time to make that into a whip. It was considered. He didn't fly off the handle. We should be the same so that anger is appropriately directed and appropriately expressed. I hope I've made it clear enough that, that, that Paul says it's good to be angry. It is good for us to be angry at times. Paul says in Ephesians 4.26, Dad, he says, be angry and do not sin. But I'd ask the question, are we making it personal? Are we cherishing and prolonging our anger? Are we talking about people behind their backs? Are we forgiving? Are we letting Jesus have control? If not, chances are we're sinning. Anne Moody, if we go to the next slide, hope you can see that. This is taken in 1963 in Jackson, 
deep south. Anne Moody is the black lady with the, the egg yolk on her head. She was an anti-segregation protester, and she would take part in sit-ins. She was an advocate of non-violent protest. Why? Because she believed in in your anger, do not sin. She was rightly furious with segregation and the racism that she and others experienced. But she actively sought to forgive at the end of each day, knowing that her God, our God, is slow to anger and rich in love. In your anger, let's not sin. And so, how can we do this? <laughs> you might be saying, Jack, that's, this is great, you know. You say in your anger, do not sin. You're saying, get angry at the right things, but I just struggle with this. And I want to bring you to this point and remind you that your body is a temple, or your body can be a temple. You've probably all heard that expression before, yes? And we remember the temple in the passage. Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. You see, the temple hadn't turned out so well, had it? That's clear from the passage. Israelite prophets would say that this physical temple was hopelessly corrupt. We read it, of it in the passage, like I said, and so there was this sense of waiting, or waiting for the ultimate temple, which was also about hundreds of years before by various prophets. And to that initial question of, I'm struggling with this, I struggled too. I still do at times. But just as Mike Pilavacci said in his, the first Everyday Supernatural talk, the one that hopefully all of, all of us are doing in our community groups, if not, I'd really recommend that you dig in. It's really good stuff. He says there's power in his presence. There is power in his presence. Jesus would say that God's presence, his rule and rest, was filling the world through his own life, his own death, his own resurrection. John 14, 27, I love these words, when Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You see, Jesus was the true temple. He is the true temple. But there's also more than that. Because the Holy Spirit means that we who believe are mini temples. It's an amazing thought. We spoke about this in our community group, and it was just such a powerful reminder that God's presence, his rest, and his rule is in us. Your body really is a temple. And with that comes the peace that transcends all understanding. 700 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah wrote these prophetic words. He said, for, a, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so my question today is, will you let Jesus counsel you? Will you let the Holy Spirit soak you in his peace? Will you trust in Jesus, the ultimate temple? Because before I knew Jesus, the false temples of this world only let me down 
and they will let you down too. The Bible tells us to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Only by the power of the Spirit can we do this. Only by the Spirit. Only by the power of the Spirit do I now clean up dog in our ginnel and, and, and pray blessing on the owners. And that blessing, of course, is would they know you, Lord Jesus Christ, because that's the greatest blessing there is. Only by the power of the Spirit do I have greater measures of self-control, patience, love, and gentleness. Now, I'm coming into land here. But if you are harboring anger, don't leave today without talking to someone about it. There are many people in this room who want to pray with you. Life group people, Christian brothers and sisters who can pray with you and walk you through this journey towards peace. And of course, the fruits of the Spirit when you invite Jesus into your heart. And if you want to invite Jesus into your life today, don't leave without doing it. I believe you're here for a reason, and I believe he's calling you into the power of his presence. So we're going to respond in a few ways. First of all, Graham is just going to come back, and we're going to sing some response songs in a minute, but I also want us to read, read something for us, which you might want to use as a time just to reflect and pray, to repent, to ask for forgiveness, to remind yourself of truth, which is that he is the ultimate provider of peace and of grace. And I'm reading from something called Every Moment Holy, which has been also a great blessing to me in lockdown. And it's modern liturgy, and it's a liturgy for one battling a destructive desire. So as I said, if it helps, close your eyes. Listen to the words carefully. Remind yourself of his great forgiveness for you, that ultimate provider of peace and of grace. Jesus, here I am again, desiring a thing that were I to indulge in it would war against my own heart and the hearts of those I love. O Christ, rather let my life be thine. Take my desires, let them be subsumed in still greater desire for you until there remains no room for these lesser cravings. In this moment, I might choose to indulge a fleeting hunger or I might choose to love you more. Faced with this temptation, I'd rather choose you, Jesus, but I am weak. So be my strength. I am shadowed. Be my light. I am selfish. And make me now. And refashion my desires according to the better designs of your love. Given the choice of shame or glory, let me choose glory. Given the choice of this moment or eternity, let me choose in this moment what is eternal. Given the choice of this easy pleasure or the hard road of the cross, give me grace to choose to follow you, knowing that there is nowhere apart from your presence where I might find the peace I long for, no lasting satisfaction apart from your reclamation of my heart. 
Let me build then my king, a beautiful thing by long obedience, by the steady progression of small choices that laid end to end will become like the stones of a pleasing path, stretching to eternity and into your welcoming arms and into the sound of your voice pronouncing the judgment. Well done. Amen.